The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. As we begin today's podcast, let me give you a very, very warm welcome. We have reached episode number 25 of this podcast. When I started this back in September, it had come after several years of wanting to do it and never quite getting round to doing it. Uh, as I sit here today with 25 episodes done, I'm just still incredibly thankful for the Westminster Confession of Faith, which outlines for us the reformed Christian faith that has been handed down over many, many generations. I hope these podcasts have been a help to you. I hope you enjoy episode 25. This is a milestone, but by no means the last episode of the podcast. Uh, By the time we get through the confession, I reckon we'll be pushing close to about 200 episodes. So stay tuned. Keep spreading the word about the podcast, keep sharing Christ and Him crucified, and let's get into today's episode. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, of God's Covenant with Man, Paragraphs 3 and 4. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the Covenant of Grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Paragraph 4 This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament, in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance, with all things belonging to it, therein bequeathed. As chapter 7, paragraph 3 begins, the Westminster Divines remind us that man, by his fall, has made himself incapable of life by that covenant. It points us backwards, of course, to the opening paragraphs of this chapter, which speak of the old covenant, the covenant of works. Man, by his fall, was incapable of life by that covenant. As a quick recap, we told you last time out that God is not like us. The gap between the creature and the creator is so huge that the Lord needs to voluntarily condescend to our level to relate to us. And he does this by way of covenant. A covenant is a promise with associated blessings and curses for obedience or disobedience. 
And the first covenant was the covenant of works. This would have been the only covenant. This would have set the terms for how humanity and God would relate. And humanity was promised eternal blessedness by way of obedience to God's law. Humanity had the ability to keep this covenant, but fell. And so it is this statement that we are reminded in paragraph 3. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. And so if the paragraph ended there, it would end on a completely hopeless note. The wages of sin is death. And so after humanity broke God's first covenant, the wages of sin that were paid out to humanity was death. Left in this condition, left in this hopeless state, then no one would be saved. But with that reminder ringing in our ears, paragraph 3 begins by telling us the hopeful words that in light of all that happened with the fall of man, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant. This covenant is what we call the covenant of grace. And in light of the fall, it was entirely necessary. Paul writes in Romans 3 and verse 20 to 21, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in Galatians 3 and verse 21, Paul says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But righteousness is no longer by the law. We have failed completely in keeping the covenant of works. So thanks be to God that he gives us a covenant of grace, the second covenant by which we must be saved. And this second covenant is outlined in the very opening verses of the Bible. Immediately after the fall, God speaks and preaches to Satan in Genesis 3 and verse 15. He says to the evil one, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord here makes it clear to the devil of what his plan of redemption is going to be. A child is coming, an offspring of the woman is coming, and whilst his heel shall be bruised, he will strike the decisive blow by bruising or crushing the serpent's head. Here we see the gospel. Here we see the covenant of grace. The Lord was pleased to make a second covenant to save sinful humanity. And it is in this covenant, as the paragraph continues, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein God freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. It is Palmer Robertson who defines a covenant in this way. He says, A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. This, I think, is a very helpful and useful definition. And we see it outlined here in this paragraph. The covenant of grace is a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the requirements of that covenant our faith in Jesus, and a blessing that we may be saved. We see this in John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Here is the covenant of grace. Here is the blessing of the covenant of grace. All who trust in Jesus will be saved. The wrath of God will no longer abide upon them. The curse that was laid upon sinful humanity in the very beginning when we rebelled against God will be lifted. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Here is the covenant of grace, and here are its terms. Paul says this in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the call of the gospel is as outlined in Revelation 22 and verse 7. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The covenant of grace is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. The blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, was shed abroad at Calvary. And all who trust in Christ, all who seek forgiveness of their sins at the foot of that cross, will be saved. Man, by his fall, may indeed have made himself incapable of life by the covenant of works, but thanks be to God that he was pleased to make a second, the covenant of grace, whereby the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and all who put their trust in the Lamb of God will be saved. I am the Lord, says God in Isaiah 42 and verse 6, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Here is Jesus. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the one in whom we must believe. And so the blessing of the covenant of grace through faith in Christ is that we will be saved from our sins. God's wrath will not abide upon us. Hell will not be our eternal destination. We will be saved. But not only that, as the paragraph continues, we are told that in the terms of the covenant of grace, God has also promised to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Here we see the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. He makes us willing and able to believe. He takes us as dead in sin human beings and he breathes life into us. We are born again and we are enabled to believe in Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. The Lord promises this in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Lord gives this clear, wonderful promise that under the terms of the covenant of grace, bad people aren't made just a wee bit better, but we are dramatically renewed and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. My friends, as you think back to the day that you were saved, you were not saved that day because you woke up that morning and decided to try to be better. You were not saved that day in church because for the first time in a long time, you'd done your best to listen really, really well. No, you have been saved because the Spirit has done a remarkable work. 
He has brought you from death to life. He has given you a new heart and a new spirit within you. He has enabled you to believe in Christ. You are redeemed by a dramatic work of the triune God. The Father chooses, the Son is bruised for us, and the Spirit renews us and produces fruit in us. Jesus tells us this in John 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Christ is utterly certain that those who the Father has given to the Son will come. And we know as we read in this paragraph that they will come because the Spirit will draw them to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus repeats this in John 6 verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father chooses us in eternity past and at that point in Calvary, the Son lays down his life for us and at some point in your life, the Spirit has drawn you with an irresistible call to Jesus. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him by the Spirit. And all those who have this remarkable work of God happen in their lives, Christ will raise them up on the last day. Here is the wonderful good news that comes in response to the awful news that despite our ability to keep the covenant of works, we failed and entered into death and sin. Thanks be to God for the covenant of grace whereby he sends his son Jesus that we may be saved, that he assures us of eternal life through faith in Christ and he gives us the Holy Spirit who makes us willing and able to believe. We thank God for this covenant because whilst the covenant of works was dependent upon humanity's perfect obedience, thankfully the covenant of grace is dependent upon the finished work of Christ. My friends, today if you have faith in Jesus, then you are no longer under the curse, but you are in Christ and you will be found in him in the last day. I absolutely adore chapter 7, paragraph 3. This wonderful covenant of grace is very clearly and simply outlined for us. And by way of clarity, the Westminster Divine saw fit to give us paragraph 4. It states, that the covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament. Certainly, if you pick up your Bible today, you will see it divided into two, the Old and the New Testament. It is a perfectly acceptable name to give to the covenants of God. It is a perfectly acceptable and biblical way to describe what we have been talking about here. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. To describe what the Westminster Divines are getting at here, they point us to Hebrews chapter 9, where Paul writes in verse 15, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. 
for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. These verses speak of the covenant and speak of testaments and wills. And Paul writes here clearly that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. You could say that he is the testator of the New Testament, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. If we think of someone having a last will and testament, it means that we gather into a room somewhere in a solicitor's office to hear what Granny Agnes is leaving us in her will. But that will does not come into force whilst Granny Agnes is still alive. So when she dies, we read the contents of her will and we discover who gets her teapot and who gets her crocheted blanket. But Paul here in Hebrews 9 does not speak of earthly things. He speaks of Christ, the testator, the mediator of a new covenant. His death has occurred, he says, that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant or the first testament. Jesus comes and keeps the covenant of works fully. He is the second Adam who obeys God completely. And his death has occurred, and it has redeemed us from the transgressions of sinful humanity committed under the first covenant. And the death of Christ has established this. The will takes effect at his death, and we today have received the promised eternal inheritance since Christ has died for us. So today, whether we speak of the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, today, whether we reference the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are speaking of exactly the same thing. I think Chad Van Dixhorn puts it really well in his wonderful book. He says, The language of covenants has helped very many Christians understand the gospel. But for others, the reality of God's gift may only come home with the language of wills and of testaments. For we all know who must die before a last will and testament can come into effect. It is the one who made it. And so it is that the Son of God bled out his life for us so that we would receive an everlasting inheritance. My friends, if last week's podcast was the bad news about our inability to keep the covenant of works, then these two paragraphs are full of good news. Today, through faith in Christ, the mediator, the testator, the Lamb of God, then you are saved. You are no longer under the law. For if you try to keep the law, then you must keep it completely, and only Christ has ever done that. No, my friends, you are no longer under the law. For the Father has sent the Son to lay down his life to pay the price for your sins. And the Spirit at a point in time has has drawn you to Jesus and you have been enabled by the Spirit to put your trust in Christ. Thanks be to God for the covenant of grace. For the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant and because of Christ there is no need for a third. Here are six questions for you to consider today. Question one. Where in the Bible do we first meet the covenant of grace? Question two. How does Palmer Robertson define a covenant? 
Question three. What are the terms of the covenant of grace? Question four. According to paragraph three, what does the Holy Spirit do in a believer's life? Question five. Why is it true to say that salvation is a work of the triune God? And question six. How does the language of wills and testaments help us to understand covenant? Finally, folks, as we wrap up today, it is with great delight that we can announce the winner and indeed winners of our podcast competition. Uh, We were offering the chance to win uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's book, Uh, alongside a copy of his wife's little study guide on her husband's book. And all you had to do was give us a little shout out either on Facebook or on Twitter. Today it is with joy that we announce a winner from Facebook, Mrs. Catherine Patterson, whose comment on the 15th of March thrilled our little hearts. And also an old friend of the podcast, Mr. Patty Smith, for his Twitter comment on March the 16th. Patty writes, shout out to This We Confess, helping us to understand what we believe and why we believe it. And he got five little hearts on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Don't know what those hearts mean, but I think people liked it. So well done, Catherine. Well done, Patty. Uh, We will be getting those books to you ASAP. And we especially like Patty's hashtag on Twitter. Hashtag stay reformed. Absolutely, Patty. And it is with that that we finish today. Music